0: And as Steve, uh, not Steve, as Dave began the service this morning, he made a comment, it was interesting, he said, I'm not sure what relevance that that quote from C.S. Lewis has on today's sermon, probably not much, and actually I think, unfortunately, it has a lot of relevance because the quote, if I wrote this down accurately, said, we must stop regarding unpleasant or unexpected things as interruptions of real life. The truth is that interruptions are real life. When we think of interruptions, I think the natural thing we think of immediately are unpleasant things. But the fact is, is that in our fallenness and our in our flesh and our sinfulness, oftentimes the things that actually should be pleasant to us are considered interruptions. So today we're going to be talking about the privilege and the priority of corporate worship corporate comes from the latin word for corpus or body and you see that in the word corporation where a a legal entity is treated as a body as a person you see that in um, in a corpse it means a body and in corporate worship what we're talking about is the assembled people who come together as one body corporate worship so that's what we're talking about today and unfortunately what should be an absolute blessing, we should view it as a privilege, we should view it as a priority in our life, actually is viewed as an interruption to real life or to what we really want to be doing. So it actually is very relevant, that quote today. And one other, one other actually two other things. With that in mind, I look, in, I look up here and I see one, two, three, four and a half full rows up in the front that are empty. One of the reasons... Well, two reasons to be here just a little bit early. Number one, it communicates the priority that this plays in your life. Number two, it gives you the opportunity to sit up front and it sounds very different up here. It sounds glorious when you can hear the voices of everyone washing over you. So I wanna encourage you next week, get here a little early, get up a little early, be paying attention to the time And um, I want to see jostling for position up here. That'd be a good problem to try to solve as shepherds. The last thing I want to say, by way of preparation, is this. I am, as we always are, for the most part, up here talking to those who belong to Jesus Christ. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I say things like we or you... Unless I say otherwise, I'm addressing those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. He has redeemed you out of slavery to your sin. You no longer belong to the world. You no longer belong to the devil. You no longer belong to yourself. You now belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to God. You are a Christian. So if that doesn't describe you today, I hope that you are blessed. I hope that you are. You find what, what we're going to be talking about today interesting. I hope that you're challenged but these words are not necessarily to you. They are to you after you have repented and turned to Jesus Christ. So just keep that in mind as, as we walk through these texts together. So this sermon topic, the, the privilege and the priority of corporate worship, really flow from the last time I preached here, which was a month or a month and a half ago. And I preached on, uh, on Psalm 84, Particularly, I focused on Psalm 84, verse 6, where the psalmist says this. He says, as they walk through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now, this finds its its context in the, it's a song where the people of God are, are pictured as walking from their homes on a journey that usually would take days or or weeks to go from their homes to the place of worship. Zion, the holy city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts. And they would walk, because that's the only form of transportation they really had, from their homes to the place of worship. And as they did, there's this beautiful little passage that people oftentimes miss. It's as they walk through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The Valley of Baca, the word Baca means... It means weeping. And so most of the the sermons, all of the sermons that I listened to talked about, well, you know, you have your weeping, and as you walk through those times of weeping and sorrow, God will make it, you know, a place of springs. And that's true, but that's not actually what it says. It's this picture as they walk from their homes to their place of worship, wherever the people of God put their feet, a place of desert and death and and, uh, um, Dryness becomes full of life, it becomes green, it becomes moist. And that, my challenge to you all when I, when I preached the last time was, that should be our lives. People should look at us and they should say, wherever they step, life emerges. Wherever they step, it goes from black and white to technicolor and beautiful. It goes from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. It goes from dirty to clean. It goes from disorder to order. And so this, this sermon today actually flows perfectly from that because my challenge to you was be that kind of people, the opposite of a bulldozer. The bulldozer enters into a place with trees and bushes and little animals, and it, it turns. As you look back, you see just dirt, and little, the homes of the little animals are no longer homes. We should be the opposite, we should be like a bulldozer marching our way through life and as we look behind us it goes from death to life right so but where are we going is the question in this in the context of psalm 84 what are they doing that produces this kind of life well they're going to worship they're going to corporate worship they're going to the place where the people of god worship together so as as we begin and as i open up god's word Let's pray. Father, I simply pray this morning that the words of my mouth and then the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our strength, and our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we reflect on Psalm 84 just a little bit, I'm going to read that to you. There's going, to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of Bible today. So I hope you're not offended. And you can look at one another. And if you are nodding off a little bit, um, feel free to get gentle, gently physical with the person next to you. But here's Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they sing for joy to the living God. Because even the sparrow, finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion, and here it is, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, of, o Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look, at the, look on the face of your anointed. Because just one day, In your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So listen to the way that these worshipers describe the place of God's dwelling and of their gathered worship. It is described as lovely. Their soul longs to be there. The thought of worship in this place causes their souls to sing with joy. It is this place that brings about a particular abundance of blessing in the lives of those who participate in it. The singing of God's people In God's residence, one day there is better than a thousand anywhere else. Notice that this is not a dry exercise of external obedience. It is not people going just through the motions. This is an expression of heartfelt, deep, and faithful desire from our Old Testament fathers and and mothers. In this text, we hear that the place to which they are heading, as I've mentioned already, in order to worship is a place called Zion. The name for the elevated position, the mountain on which the temple sat. But there are a lot of other names that are used even in this text and elsewhere to describe this same place. Zion is called his holy mountain, same place. And the city of our God, same place. We hear this Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. It's all another name for that the center of the great city Jerusalem. And consider again, what the attitude of these people our forefathers in the faith. Consider the attitude of them toward this place. that was the center, not only of their personal world, but they viewed it as the center of the cosmos. Their chief concern was the blessing of that place. In Psalm 51, you hear, do, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. This is a call to God. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And for Jerusalem to be, to be blessed meant that the people themselves were blessed. If Jerusalem was blessed, I was blessed. You hear this in Psalm 128. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. The chiefest joy of God's people was the good of Jerusalem, of Zion. In Psalm 137, which is actually a psalm of lament, of sadness. Because it takes place in the midst of captivity. The people of God had been rebellious. Generation after generation after generation, God had warned them, if you do not turn away from your sin and turn toward me where real joy and fullness can be found, then you are going to experience the chastisement, the discipline of God. And they ignored him. And so he was a good father, and he chastised them as a people, and they were sent into captivity for 70 years. They're in Babylon. Jerusalem has now been turned into rubble. All of the chief people have been taken away, and it's just a rabble of people who are left. And While they're in Babylon, they sing this song, Psalm 137, and when you hear it, listen to these words, they're in captivity, they're lamenting, and hear the heart of these people, what is important to them. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. In other words, let me not even be able to say another word if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my chiefest, my highest joy. Above all the joys that they could experience or hope for, Jerusalem's blessing is the highest. It wasn't their own personal rescue. It was the rescue of God's place of worship that was their highest joy. Okay, so I've been mentioning all these things about the Old Testament, and we come with with certain oftentimes assumptions about, well, we, we say things like, or even though it may not be conscious, but that was then, this is now. That was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. And that's true. There have been changes. What are some of the changes? Well, the shadows have become reality. All that pointed to Jesus is now fulfilled in him. That's a change. That's a significant change. We no longer need anything to point to him in the same way because he's come. The sacrifice is permanent, done and effective. And all of these sacrifices that needed to be given day after day after day, year after year in the Old Covenant, they're done because they're kept in the permanent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We see this in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be focusing a lot the rest of the sermon on on the book of Hebrews. We see this where the focus really is on understanding the relationship of the Old and New Covenant. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law, the Old covenant administration for since the law had but a shadow of the good things to come okay so number one the law contained shadows you can see the outline of what it's what's represented but it's not the fullness and it's the shadow of what of the good things to come The shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can, the the law, the Old Testament administration, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, perfect those who draw near. The Old Covenant administration was important as as a placeholder, as a shadow, as a picture, as a signpost. It was important, but it never satisfied God's holy requirement of justice. That could only be satisfied in the Lord Jesus. Forgiveness in Jesus has been accomplished now, not simply promised as it was in the old covenant. And so we're told that we can, in light of this, have confidence and assurance, a kind of confidence that clearly they could not have in the old covenant. Another blessing. Here are the words, of again, of the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. I just read chapter, uh, verse 1. This is from verses 19 to 22. Therefore, in light of this, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So in Jesus' broken body, he actually opened the way for us to access God, like a curtain being opened. And since we have a great high priest, that's again Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, that's always been the case, God wants, he wants worshipers who worship him from the heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can not only have an assurance now, we can have a full assurance we can do this outside of the physical location of Palestine. We can enter into God's presence now because there is another change. Worship has been internationalized. We see this very clearly in Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says to her, this Samaritan woman, worshiping on the wrong mountain at the time, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, where you ought to be worshiping, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus was clear. The worship of God was not going to remain cooped up in Jerusalem. That promise was actually made in the beginning. To Abraham, he was to be the father of many nations. So many, in fact, that even the palatial courts of the temple and the spacious walls of Jerusalem could not contain so many people. It should, not, it should have been obvious to the Jews that though the substance, this is important, hear this word, the substance of the old covenant was permanent. The external system and symbols of the old covenant were not They had been given and been engineered with planned obsolescence. If you if you engineer a device and you build in into it a period of time at which it's no longer going to work right, it's no longer going to be effective. That's planned. You're planning in obsolescence. Well, the old covenant came. God engineered it with planned obsolescence. It was not to be permanent. It was a placeholder. It was designed to be temporary and to make way for what was permanent or what is permanent. So we hear these encouraging words, and especially the promise that worship would be in spirit and in truth, no longer attached to this one mountain, no longer in this one place, and then we tend to do something that we often do. We mess it up. Ah, he wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. And what we tend to do is we tend to interpret this, oftentimes, worship in spirit means disembodied and individualistic. To worship in spirit and truth means that It's no longer attached to my body. Somehow I need to kind of get outside my body, and I'm going to be spiritual and individualistic. I no longer have to worship with God's people. That no longer holds the same place of importance in my life because I'm going to worship in spirit and truth, and I don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. Where does that come from? This is actually new. In the grand sweep of history, this is a new way of thinking. We are, it comes from our culture, and we are creatures of our culture, and that's not a surprise. God designed culture to work this way. Culture is supposed to be a blessing, culture is supposed to provide the guardrails for our life. But when culture goes bad, those rails take us off a cliff, and the pit that we've fallen into is the pit of autonomous individualism. I am a law unto myself. And I am the most, when God looks down, what's important is that he sees me. But that's not, that's a, a modern way of viewing the world and the human person. That is, that is new. That's not old. That's very new. It appeals to our natural framework, which is to think we ourselves are at the center of the universe and the most important component of that universe. We have a tendency to think that my personal experience trumps corporate experience, the experience of the gathered people. Spontaneity, we think, flowing from my own genius, or at least my own perceived genuineness, my own individual expression, somehow trumps liturgy. Liturgy are the, is the, the formal steps that we go through during our time together. Anything that provides boundaries to my own personal expression is to be suspect in this philosophy of the world and of the human person. But the reality that God reveals is that though worship cannot be smaller than us, you are important. God did save individuals. Salvation isn't smaller than you. God saved all of you, meaning all of who you are as a person. It's not smaller than you, but it is far bigger than you. And far more beautiful because of that. It's true that we worship as individuals. But we worship as individuals in a corporate, covenantal body. Well, What about, what about the fact that I'm supposed to worship wherever I am, not just here? Well, that's true and that's always been the case. We're supposed to, this might sound familiar to many of you, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. We're always to be praising. Psalm 113, verse 3, which is an Old Covenant, Old Testament passage, says this. From the rising of the sun to its setting. So, the whole day, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Okay. What about the New Testament? Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him then, this is talking about Jesus, let us continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Praise is to be a constant drumbeat undergirding our life. It was, that is not a New Testament new reality. That is an old reality that we just continue to carry on into the New Testament with a greater ability to, to live that out. This didn't change in the New Testament. The New Testament did not make a... Pay attention to this. The New Testament did not make a shift from corporate to individual or from public to private. Corporate worship, when it is true, is personal. Corporate worship, though, and this is why we, we tend to not value it in our culture as much as we ought to is because it's not a choose your own adventure do you guys remember those books if you're older like me where the it would work this way you'd start in chapter one and at the end of the chapter you could make a decision do i go right or do i go left and depending on what you chose it told you the chapter number to go to because this is old school it's actually in real books with paper and depending on your choices throughout the book you'd end up at a different result we like that i want to be able to choose my own adventure and you come to a place like this where, you know you, you know, you don't have, like, stations around where, okay, I can go do my, um, my interpretive dancing over here, I can, I can paint my, my sacramental image over here, I, can, uh, I, I don't get to choose my, my songs that I want to sing, they're chosen for me, and that just rubs us the wrong way. And I think that comes from this assumption, it's a wrong assumption, but this assumption that if I'm not in control of the experience, then it's not truly mine, and this is nothing more than the expression of the modern—I've already mentioned this word—autonomous zeitgeist, this postmodern kind of ethos, this this um, climate, this cultural climate in which we live of self-actualization, the philosophy of "you can't me tell what to do"ism but we see the silliness of this kind of thinking when we take it out of the context of the worship of God which should be our center of our life and the most important part of what we do and we bring it down into our daily life you may not be in charge for instance of a family dinner but whether your presence there is personal and genuine or not isn't a matter of your your lack of or control over what's happening there it's a matter of your attitude your perspective and honestly, just your obedience. Regardless of the fact that you are not, when you have a family dinner, you are not in charge unless you are in charge. You are not in charge of the menu. You're not in charge of the seating arrangement. You're not in charge of the dishware that was chosen. You're not in charge of who's in attendance. You're not in charge of what traditions are practiced or in what what the, the order of those traditions are practiced during the meal. And it's the same thing when we gather here. The fact that it involves others to whom you must pay attention, sitting beside you, and involves others to whom you must submit, your elders, shepherds, deacons. The fact that it has a form that you should engage in alongside others, this does not make it impersonal or disingenuous unless you bring that with you. The fact that we no longer worship at one mountain and that we worship in spirit and in truth means that worship has been, as I said again, internationalized but not individualized. We still enter Zion. And we still enter Zion together. This is exactly what the book of Hebrews talks about. The location of Zion has changed. The change is that Zion is now in heaven and that's where we go when we worship together when we worship today. You have entered Zion. You're no longer in Ceres, California. And one day, the Zion that has moved from Palestine to heaven will be in the consummated work of Jesus brought together into the new heavens and the new earth. And it is then that we will not ever truly leave Zion. But all our work, all our life, will take place within that glorious ethos of worship. So, I hope that we're seeing that the symbols, the system, that's changed. The location of worship has changed from Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem. But the substance, based on the unchangeable promises of God, will not, and in fact cannot, because they're based on his promises, they cannot change. In fact, the symbols and the system should change to reflect the move from shadow to reality. We still have a priest, but now a permanent and far better one. We still have a country and a city. Here Hebrews 11:16. "But as it is, they desire a better country. These are the Old Testament fathers who they had a city, but they, they desired a better one. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The city we are a part of is one that Abraham himself was seeking but was not allowed to see. Hebrews 11.10 says this, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we have come to that mountain city. You sitting here today, if you know Jesus Christ, you have come to this mountain city. That's where we go to worship. That is one of the great blessings of the new covenant. You see that in chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's, that is a festival. Imagine innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is a crowded place, and getting more crowded all the time, as you would expect a city to be. And that's how it's described, as a city, as a garden city, but it's a city. We must dispel any idea that the new covenant, with its overflow of spirituality and grace, somehow makes room for the monstrous idea that we can ever properly think of ourselves as a congregation of one. The mass of humanity called the church from the beginning of the redemption story finds its fullness and fulfillment in us, not its destruction. You cannot have a congregation of one. That's a contradiction. A congregation is our people coming together. But think about how Americans so often think about their own personal spirituality. I don't need the church. I don't need this It's just me and God. But that isn't what God says. He calls us to congregate together. You cannot have a congregation of one. And so, unfortunately, I love this idea. 99% extroverted. And some of you are thinking, crowds? Yeah, I see some of you. But to be a Christian, in a sense, is to live within a crowd. Or at least to live in a crowded family. As we read in Psalm eighty, or as we read in Psalm eighty-four already, He is the Lord of hosts. That is a big mass of people. He's not the Lord of autonomous island individuals. To be a Christian is to rightly be called into a gathering, a cloud of witnesses, a sky so full of stars that He cannot you can't be, they can't be counted. A crowd of sand that you cannot count. To be a Christian is to be knitted together into a single body as cramped and limiting as that might seem at first to our rugged American ears. And so now we come to, the, to really what I hope to be the heart as we, as we near the end of what you take away from the message today. With all of this other information as a helpful backdrop. I'm hoping that this passage that I'm going to draw from a little bit from Romans 9, uh, not Romans not Hebrews 9 and then part of Hebrews 10. You can look at it all in context when you go home that it will help tie a bunch of this together. This passage will sound familiar to you, and you'll be reminded in it of who you are supposed to be spending time with. So in this passage, you're going to go, oh yeah, that sounds familiar to me. Yeah, I, I know who, according to this, I'm supposed to be spending my time with, particularly in worship. But I also want you to consider, like me, probably for the first time, that this passage tells us not just who... We are to be with and worship with but where we are going so let's read this is going to come from hebrews chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 hebrews chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves would better sacrifices than these for christ has entered christ has entered Not into the holy place made with hands. So not into the temple in the physical land of Palestine. But he has entered into a place, it says, uh, which are copies of the true things. So what you saw in Jerusalem at the time when it was in existence were copies of the heavenly things. So he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Where has Jesus gone? He has gone into the real temple, the temple in heaven, and that's where he resides. There is still a holy place that must be entered, and we must enter it. The Old Testament saints could not enter it. They had to enter symbolically through the representative of the high priest. But now, listen to what we read. This is gonna be in Hebrews chapter 10, just a few verses later, as the author continues to fill out this argument. This is verse 19 through 20, verses 19 through 25 in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and before we continue to move on, notice that the pronoun here is the pronoun we, not you. It could be you. But they that that idea of individualism is new they didn't think that way they thought in terms of we the covenant people of god what we are doing here we are doing together and what are we doing we are entering into the place that was not open to us prior to the finished work of jesus we are entering the holy place and that with a confidence that the bells that were attached to the high priest's garment proved that they did not have and could not have they could not have the confidence that we have And so he continues. And by the new and living way that he opened for us, again, the new covenant is so much better. It is a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest... Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If you were paying attention, and you may have spaced out there, but if you're you're paying attention, like me, when I read these verses and I'm picturing, I picture things in my head... I would have already lost the congregation. The promises that are indicated here are to we, to us, and yet I would have been picturing myself. So were you, if you have a picture in your head, were you alone? If you were, then you're suffering from the modern individualistic pandemic. And so let's repent of that today. Stop picturing yourself alone. It's not the picture we're given because it's not reality. And we see that again here, because one of the things we are supposed to do within the congregation is what the author says next. Let us consider, he goes on to say, how to, this is where it's going to sound really familiar, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together. Like we go there, right? We go there quite frequently. At least pastors do. You know, stop stop, um, placing your life in the body of this church so low on your priority list. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've seen these words before. Let us not neglect to meet together. But this meeting together is far more glorious than I think we, we, most of us realize. When he says meeting together here, it's in the context of coming together and in doing so entering into the very place where Jesus, our high priest, is ministering. We are, when we come together in this context, we are entering into Zion, to the temple, to the city, to the holy of holies. It's true that we ought not to avoid just great Christian fellowship, like the meal at the Walker's house that we're not going to have today, or At the Larson's house. In our time together where we are indeed encouraging each other. But when we gather together in worship as the body of Jesus. In this way we are in fact going to Zion. Entering into the throne room of Jesus. Visiting the holy city. The people of God placed at the center of their life. The congregation of God's people in God's city to worship him. It was the highlight of their lives. As we enter into worship as God's people. We are entering into the very courtrooms of God surrounded by innumerable angelic hosts and joined by those saints who have gone before us. This is one of the unique blessings that we have as we come together as God's corporate covenant gathered people. We are still a people called to worship together. We are still called to draw near corporately. We are still called to gather, which cannot be done unless it's corporately. This should still be one of the highest, the chiefest joys and should help structure our priorities and our schedules as individuals and as families. Being a member of the new covenant does not negate this. It makes it more glorious. We get to do it more often. It's less burdensome. There's no no bleeding animals and blood. We don't have to make A super long journey that takes days or weeks and we are closer to the consummation where it all comes together and is completed when we do not forsake the gathering together in the context here the context of corporate worship we are in fact as the author says in chapter 12 this is what we're doing We are, according to the author, coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, as I've already said, in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, I'm sorry, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of this, because of all of this, corporate worship is to be preferred to private spirituality. Private spirituality is vital, it's necessary, it should follow us through everything that we do in life. But when we think like the Old Testament people thought about coming together in worship, that should cause our heart to, to leap in a way it doesn't as we're walking through our normal everyday life and praising Him and as, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Consider the testimony of Scripture with regards to the glory and the priority of our worship as God's assembled people in this appointed place. Psalm 87, 1, two, one through 2 says this On the Holy Mount stands the city He founded. Now we know where that's now located. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. When God sets the individual places of worship next to the corporate place of worship, we are told that he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of his people. You could make an objection. If we no longer had a Zion in which to worship... If that had all been done away with, then one might have a case to make that this whole corporate worship preference is an Old Testament antiquated idea. But as we see over and over again in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, we see that we still go to Zion, and we still do this together. One of the reasons our corporate worship should be greatly preferred is that we should be eager that the name of God be lifted up publicly. Psalm 96, 1 through 3 says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. God is working publicly, and he's doing this amidst the peoples. And this is made more explicit in Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. What is the psalmist doing here? He's calling people to magnify the Lord with him. Let us exalt his name together. There's a blessing as we exalt God's name together that we don't have when we do so individually. And then lastly, consider this. As God uses corporate worship, he, he, he does a number of things in it. And one of the things is that he brings clarity that we don't have in our own personal prayer closet. Do you ever wonder? You ever, do you ever um, have confusion Well, consider the words of Asaph in Psalm 73. He tells us at the beginning of this psalm that his feet were about to slip. He was in confusion. He was in despair. But in in verse 16 and 17, he says this. But when I thought, how to understand all this? It seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So lastly, consider another passage from Hebrews chapter 11. And then compare this as a moment of honest reflection to your own life and priorities. In what we often call the hall of faith in chapter 11, where a whole bunch of people who came way before us, are their stories are mentioned or recounted as examples of faithfulness. The author of Hebrews points to Moses and says this, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I realize that many of the things that we do on the Lord's Day when we have opportunity to come together like this, they're not sinful. I understand that. But what can we learn from Moses here? He set aside his own pleasures, sinful or otherwise, because he would rather have been with God's people even if it meant suffering. He's not alone in this. We end where we began in Psalm 84. As we walk through the Valley of Baca, we can only hope to make it a place of springs if we have the same goal in mind that's described in Psalm 84. A goal that overflows into our daily lives, of course, but our ultimate destination should be our ultimate joy through that process. That ultimate joy should be that which comes from the worship of God's people. Does your soul long and faint for the courts of the Lord? Not some day when God takes you home. Of course we want that. That will be glorious. But you have an opportunity every time we come together as the people of God to get a foretaste of what that's like, to enter into that place. Does your soul sing for joy as you contemplate and then experience the worship of God's people? Do you see this as a place in which your soul, like a sparrow, can finally find rest? When we enter into worship, we enter into Zion. Do you believe that the courts here are better than anywhere else that you could be? Better than the beach, a football game, even a solitary mountain vista? Are you willing to be a simple doorkeeper in God's house than to dwell anywhere else? For any of this to be true requires a miraculous work of God in our hearts. It requires our hearts be changed, our desires be changed, our priorities be changed. And so the only hope we have is to come before him and ask for that. And so that's what we're going to do now as we end. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask this morning that where our priorities have not been aligned with yours, where our joys have not been the chiefest joys that they ought to be, where our desires need to be revolutionized, turned upside down, changed, we ask that you would do what only you can do, change those desires, change our hearts. We thank you that you promise that what you've begun, you will complete. And so we look forward to seeing what you're going to do in light of all of this in the coming days as you continue to change our hearts. Help us to honor you, to glorify you, and to make that our chiefest joy.